question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. And I'm Andy Longhurst. On today's program, we explore urban economies, industrial displacement, and the future of economic development, as well as questioning the inevitability uh, or the seeming inevitability of deindustrialization and the post-industrial urban economy. What type of industries prosper in particular places? Why? And what are some of the pressures industries face in a globalized economy and within the context of the so-called global city? We'll be looking at these questions and much more. You're tuned into The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us. Cities like New York have embraced the global city moniker as central to their identity and have fostered those economic sectors that city leaders understand as being congruent with this designation. Financial and producer services and the arts economy, signals of global cityhood, have become vital to New York's self-image. Economic sectors that do not fit within the image of a global city suffer through a policy of malign neglect. A focus on the global financial and cultural sectors as the most important and indeed only source of economic prosperity leads urban governments to ignore the diversity and potential of local urban economies. Indeed, it is as the mono, if the monovision induced by the lure of the global city designation has blinded urban governments to the key role that urbanization economies play in the success of urban areas and to the key point that, re, that reaping urbanization economies requires the spatial concentration of diverse forms of economic activity. Urban government's emphasis on global city-appropriate economic activity has led to homogenized urban landscape economic development policies that seek to attract producer services and the creative class, and that spend public monies on high-rise office blocks, luxury housing, and stadiums to do so. Land use decisions that privilege the city of fin- the, that privilege the city of finance and spectacle ignore the fact that manufacturing is still an important and vibrant sector of the economy, even and especially in a global city. An urban policy of malign neglect is displacing small-scale manufacturers in favor of higher-end users such as luxury condominiums. Policymakers see this process of land use change as simply the inevitable result of global economic forces. But these global forces are hardly monolithic, nor their effects preordained. Urban policy is as much the result of local political forces as of seemingly inevitable global dictates. 
And that's Winifred Curran and Susan Hansen in an article published in the journal Urban Geography, Getting Globalized, Urban Policy and Industrial Displacement in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And today on the show, uh, we're talking in depth about many of these themes uh, related to urban economies and the urban economic landscape. And this is the first part um, of an ongoing series exploring urban economic geographies um, and everything that comes with that. Um, So in this episode, uh, we're going to take a look at these broader themes and uh, take New York City as a case, as a as a as a broader case study to really um, look at a number of these themes and unpack them. And then in upcoming episodes, um, we'll be applying a critical urban lens uh, to Vancouver's economic landscape. So on today's show, um, talking at depth, uh, in depth with uh, Winifred Curran. She is Associate Professor of Geography at DePaul University in Chicago. She is an urban geographer, urban geographer excuse me, with interests in gentrification and urban change, labor geographies, and race and gender. Her dissertation work looked at the effect of gentrification on small-scale manufacturers in the Williamsburg neighborhood of Brooklyn. And another current research project of hers looks at the links between gentrification and environmentalism. And Dr. Uh, Curran is also a member of the Affordable Rental Housing Inventory Research Team funded by um, the the U.S.-based MacArthur Foundation. She has been published in the International Journal of Urban and Regional Research, Local Environment, Urban Geography, and Urban Studies, among others. First of all, Winifred, can you tell me who you are and uh, a little bit about your research and uh, how you um, fell into geography? You are Associate Professor of Geography at DePaul University in Chicago, Illinois, and a lot of your research has looked at industrial displacement. Yes. Um, Well, I did work on industrial displacement for my doctoral dissertation, and I had already, um, I had been an urban geographer already. and uh, didn't sort of think that industrial displacement was what I was interested in, um, and had done work on gentrification previously in the Fort Greene neighborhood of, of Brooklyn, which is a, an historically African-American neighborhood that has um, gentrified quite um, extensively uh, starting in the late 1990s. Um, and um, so when I was, I was looking at sort of other neighborhoods to explore, and was actually inter- what got me interested in Williamsburg was um, that at that time, this is about 1999-2000, um, there was a strike going on at the Domino Sugar Factory that was then in Williamsburg. And as someone who was spending time in the neighborhood and, and you know, sort of knew a lot about New York City, I'm from Brooklyn originally, so I was doing research at home, if you will. And um, that I hadn't even known that the plant was, was still operational and that people who lived even quite close to it weren't sort of aware of the industrial present, let alone the industrial past, right? So that's sort of what got me interested in, um, like that particular case study is what got me interested in this as a, as a phenomenon, and that sort of as I was researching one company, it sort of became clear in which the ways in which industrial businesses throughout the neighborhood and, of course, the city and, and um, really in industrialized urban areas around the world are um, – so undervalued and underappreciated and sort of considered to be extinct even when they're not. Um, and that gentrification is at least in part um, related to this process of displacement because it, it has sort of attributed this historical value to industrial spaces, this real estate value, but no sort of current actual use value. And so that was sort of what I was interested in, um, in getting at. Okay. Um, yeah. 
So, and then coming from, you know, my background, I have a, a BA in geography, which some in the American context at any rate is unusual to have three degrees in geography. So I've been a geographer for a long time since mm -hmm. uh, really my freshman year of college um, for just having taken, you know, a great geography class and realized that that was the way that I thought and I hadn't known there was a name for it before. You know, so what's interests interest me about all of this stuff is the way in which kind of as I was just discussing in the case of the Domino Sugar Factory, the, the local and the global are connected always and everywhere, that these are sort of mutually constituted scales. Um, and how do, we, how do we, you know, understand those connections? First of all, can you, um, can you talk more about Williamsburg and, and Brooklyn and the landscape that um, folks would see, especially if, um, if people aren't familiar with uh, that part of the U.S. And, and that part of New York City? Sure. Williamsburg is a neighborhood in um, the is in the northernmost um, part of Brooklyn, and why it has sort of historically its geography has been very important to how it develops because it's directly across the East River from the Lower East Side of Manhattan. So from sort of very early times, that has determined sort of what happens to Williamsburg. Um, so it, it sort of explains why it became industrialized in the first place, because of its easy access by water to, um, to Manhattan, to the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Um, it explains the populations that were present in Williamsburg because of the immigrant flow um, from the Lower East Side. So a lot of you know, poor immigrants, um, especially Jewish immigrants, um, once the Williamsburg Bridge opened in the early part of the 20th century, could walk to work. Um, in, for example, the garment industry factories in the Lower East Side of Manhattan from, um, from working class housing in Williamsburg, for example. So, um, and, that, and then, of course, that kind of evolves into gentrification working in the same way in Williamsburg, that because of its proximity to Manhattan, because of its views of Manhattan, um, it becomes kind of an extension of Manhattan. So for many um, Brooklynites even, and myself included, um, Williamsburg is sort of seen almost as more of an extension of Manhattan than a part of kind of the rest of Brooklyn in a way right. because of this close connection. Um, and so, again, because of this close connection, once, once gentrification had started on the Lower East Side of Manhattan and got so heated there, um, people were looking for sort of the next frontier, if you will. And that the, you know, following the trend in sort of loft living, and those sorts of things that Sharon Zukin um, detailed in the Soho neighborhood of Manhattan in the 1980s, Williamsburg was kind of a logical next step, kind of geographically as well as aesthetically, because it was sort of the next neighborhood that had this supply of um, loft-style architecture that had been so kind of valorized um, in the 1980s was sort of the discovery of the artistic mode of production. Um, and so that combined with, again, you know, if you're on the, the best place to get a view of the Manhattan skyline is from the Brooklyn waterfront. Um, and so Williamsburg has that going for it in spades, as well as then this, this you know, sort of newly valorized architectural form. Um, so that's one way in which kind of gentrification is this kind of obvious um, extension into Williamsburg, although in other ways it's not so obvious because it's not, Williamsburg doesn't have a large supply of, you know, beautiful brownstones that have made other neighborhoods in Brooklyn famous, um, you know, areas like Park Slope and Brooklyn Heights that have this historic um, kind of luxury residential um, architecture that was rediscovered. Right. It is, 
it you know it was it was a working class area of the city during its industrial heyday it had some of the most crowded areas in all of new york city so this is this that that is is very visible on the landscape you know most of the residential architecture is not particularly attractive or historic um it's well historic but maybe not attractive mm-hmm. in the way that we think of you know sort of historic designation and landmark designations the fact you know many factories are still there whether they're working or not um and so in that way, in sort of the, the physical way, it's not sort of an obvious choice for gentrification, but then the sort of other geographic elements that I mentioned, um, you know, make it the, the sort of offbeat choice or for a period of time at least before it became kind of the epicenter of gentrification in New York. Um, that, that's what made it so profitable, right, was this, this kind of disconnect between the, the um, advantages that it has, like the view of Manhattan, the spatial proximity, the the L train goes directly from um, 14th Street in Manhattan across to the first stop is in Williamsburg. Um, you know, those things made it attractive at the same time that, you know, that other elements um, had had been successful in, you know, in, in keeping real estate prices low for a very long period of time. The, um, the large stock of industrial property of active industrial businesses that that sort of kept it off the radar for a long time as a residential neighborhood, certainly along the waterfront at, at any rate. Let's talk about, can we talk about those pressures um, of gentrification and, and I guess, first of all, um, what is gentrification and how would you um, explain, um, you know, a gentrification 101 to those unfamiliar with uh, those, those uh, that process and sure. the, the pressures that it placed upon that industrial landscape? Yeah. In many ways, that's not an easy question because there's plenty of debate over what gentrification is. Um, for me, um, my definition of gentrification is the influx of upper income land uses into previously working class areas, resulting in the displacement of the original working class population. Um, and so that can be both a residential population or a business population like industrial businesses. Um, And so for me, what's important about gentrification is that it causes displacement. That's what makes gentrification gentrification. So I think for a lot of people unfamiliar with the term or perhaps only familiar with it in the the popular press, um, gentrification has come to be equated with any sort of urban redevelopment, any any attempt to to improve um, a neighborhood aesthetically or economically. and I want people to understand in my geography, you know, sort of gentrification 101, that what makes gentrification gentrification is not the development part, but the displacement part, right? That the, that the development that results from gentrification is predicated upon the displacement of working class populations who were there previously. Right. So, um, so for me, therefore, gentrification is something to be contested and fought against and not something to be welcomed. Um, Development is something to be welcomed, right? Economic revitalization of neighborhoods that have been underserved is a wonderful thing. Um, doing that while at the same time displacing the people who suffered from, you know, the lack of city services and lack of economic opportunities doesn't in any way change the experience of those populations. And so, to me, what's the point, right? What's, if you can, if you are improving a place without improving the lives of the people who are in and of that place, then you haven't actually achieved very much of anything at all, to my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is my definition of gentrification, so, at which clearly it's a contested, very highly contested topic, mm-hmm. as is the explanation of why gentrification happens. 
So there are two major kind of schools of thought on this, uh, a consumption side and a production side. And so the consumption side argument is that in the context of a changing global economy, in which you know globalization is our, our new sort of mode of production, um, the production has become much less important than services like finance, insurance, real estate, those sorts of things. Um, that this sort of new middle class, with David Lay, Canadian geographer David Lay, calls um, in the, the department I study in. <laughs> exactly, and, yeah. and you know who's who has done extraordinary work and really nuanced and sophisticated work, and I don't want to simplify his his argument in any way. Um, but his phrase is the new middle class that these people are you sort of want new and different things than a previous generation. You know, that, that, that the sort of the house in the suburbs of the white picket fence is not enough for them, that these are more um, sort of highly educated, cosmopolitan um, people who want the benefits of city living, who want the attractions, uh, you know, the cultural attractions, the amenities, the convenience of things like public transportation, um, the, you know, the hustle and bustle of the big city. And so therefore kind of, you know, rediscovering um, what the city has to offer. Um, and so it is this demand then. So the, the thought is that there is a demand for new types of housing, a demand for increased investment in inner city neighborhoods that had previously been um, disinvested from. So that's kind of one side of the mm-hmm. argument. The other side of the argument is that this is not about demand from a particular consumer base, but that these spaces are being actively produced by speculators, real estate developers, and urban governments um, in the search for profit. And that following suburban and even ex-urban development, that the the sort of new frontier of profitability, in the language of Neil Smith, who is the the major proponent of this argument in his theory on the rent gap, um, is that the next frontier for profitability was the inner city because of how thorough disinvestment had been in the 60s and 70s. Can you talk? Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. So, and that's sort of the the greatest profit potential um, is in inner city neighborhoods because that's where the gap between the actual land use and the potential ground ground use is greatest. Right. right? So you can develop anywhere, you know, to develop um, a new suburban community or to develop in, you know, an already, um, you know, well-established and well-regarded urban neighborhood, you can do that, but there's only so much profit you can make, right? You know, that's that market has been established. But if you are able to, you know, so-called rehabilitate an inner city urban neighborhood and sort of create a market where none existed before, the profit potential there is enormous. And that that is what is driving gentrification is the search for profit. And where do you fall on this uh, on this debate? I fall on the rent gap side. I, right. <laughs> I am, um, and in fact, was educated in this. I had a class with Neil Smith when I was getting my master's degree, and mm-hmm. it completely opened my eyes. You yeah. know, and again, I have told people more than once that I feel like Neil taught me how to think, mm-hmm. um, because you know, sort of things that so much of what we kind of assume and what kind of becomes kind of naturalized in the way that we think cities work when you sort of see it explained the way he explains it and how he sort of, you know, tracks the development of places like New York, it becomes quite clear that there's not, you know, this is not an inevitable process, right? That there, there are very powerful actors involved in the construction of the urban landscape. Can these two traditions coexist? This is somewhat of a academic argument, but I think it's important to understand that um, not everyone is on the same page in, in how they analyze um, gentrification. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, there, these are sort of the two extremes, and I would say that most people in gentrification research now realize that the truth is probably someplace in the middle, mm-hmm. and and indeed um, varies from place to place. Right, that's part of the 
especially as geographers, we don't want to assume that place doesn't matter, right? If we say that this is how gentrification works all the time, then we sort of, uh, then we minimize the importance of geography. And certainly we don't want to do that because it does, because place does matter and things do happen differently in different places, even if there are broad sort of economic trends that help us to kind of predict what's going to happen in certain places. But certainly there has been a literature on the, the geography of gentrification um, through, from people like Loretta Lees and, and Tom Slater, who, um, you know, try to make this argument that it is not, it is not either or, but both and, um, mm-hmm. you know, that there is, that you couldn't be successful at producing um, gentrified landscapes if you didn't have a population who was ready to consume them, mm-hmm. right? And so that you have, um, you know, both aspects are, are at play here, clearly. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I think, I mean, I think most people, while they fall perhaps more on one side or the other of the continuum, recognize that there is truth to both. Right. I want to shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about the the history and the, the historical geography of deindustrialization um, in the United States and particularly in New York City um, and how this relates to um, the current industrial displacement and how that has, has shaped um, these processes and, and a lot of the rhetoric around um, the inevitability of um, industrial displacement and deindustrialization. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I kind of try to fight most in my work is this assumption of inevitability when it comes to sort of the post-industrial city or the post-industrial landscape. Um, and certainly that's especially true in places like New York City that had um, and have still quite diverse industrial landscapes and industrial economic bases. So we're not talking about some place like Flint, Michigan, where you're so dependent on one industry, and therefore, if that industry globalizes at all, then you you know you have lost your advantage, and it's very hard to recover. Cities like New York that have much broader industrial bases, you know, that's that's not true. They're not so reliant on one industry, and so if that industry you know looks for lower lower wages someplace else, that it has completely lost its its economic advantage in the market. New York's decision to deindustrialize again, sort of unlike a place like Flint. Um, was as much a policy decision as it was an economic process Um, because New York was really engaged in the work of getting rid of a lot of its industrial infrastructure even in the 1940s, Um, you know, before deindustrialization was something that anyone was really even talking about or considering and before, you know, globalization became the, you know, sort of the, the word of the moment and our kind of explanation of how, how the, the global economy works. Um, the city was actively, you know, engaged in getting rid of its, of its port facilities, um, of, you know, not, not keeping those up and, and in fact looking at ways to convert them to other uses, um, high-end residential and, um, primarily office space of engaging in urban renewal projects like the construction of the World Trade Center that directly displaced um, more industrial um, uses in order to, to capitalize on more, you know, high rent um, opportunities like office construction. That, you know, that really, at the time that, that New York was really first deindustrializing um, in the, you know, especially in the 60s, um, that was the that was the new frontier. You know, this goal was to get rid of industrial uses, and specifically in Manhattan, so that you could open it up to 
to, to higher-end options, right? Higher and best use is a phrase that you hear a lot in you know, urban policy circles. Um, and that because you can get higher rents for office space than you can for industrial space, that's where New York wanted to move. And so that was a, that was a policy decision um, as much as it was any sort of you know, economic inevitability. And that once that proves successful in Manhattan, so then industry gets displaced from Manhattan to places like Brooklyn and the Bronx primarily. Um, and so you wait a few more years, and then those places in, in, in Brooklyn especially, less so in the Bronx, so it is starting to happen there a little bit too, um, those places go through a, a very similar cycle in which because um, industrial landscapes, places like Soho and Manhattan, um, have become attractive because of particular architectural styles, um, then other neighborhoods that have similar um, attributes become the next frontier for speculation. And so that's what happened in Williamsburg, that as other other neighborhoods, well, first of all, that <clears throat> gentrification happens in the Lower East Side, and so there is this sort of geographic um, trend in which a neighborhood is, is increasingly surrounded by other gentrified neighborhoods, and so that obviously leads to increased real estate values. Um, but very particularly in Williamsburg, that it's, it was uh, a lifestyle that was being sold to, you know, this, this idea of, of sort of industrial grit and urban authenticity um, that kind of helped to explain the fact that it's not the most aesthetically pleasing neighborhood, um, architecturally at least. Um, and so therefore you, you had a sort of, um, you know, it was, it was hip to, to, to prove your street cred by moving to a resident, to a, a neighborhood like Williamsburg. And what kind of people typically, um, were or are attracted to these neighborhoods? Yeah, the first wave in Williamsburg, as, as it is in many places, um, was artists. This is primarily in the late 70s, um, in part, again, because of loft space, right, that loss. Um, there's a reason artists are attracted to loft space, not just because they're, they're cool, right, but they're good spaces, they're good live work spaces, um, they're good places to do work that may be, you know, noisy or smelly or, um, you know, these are incredibly well-constructed buildings with very thick floors. And so, you know, you can be a, a musician and people will complain about the noise. You can be engaged in, you know, large-scale artwork um, and you have the space, you know, to, to, to work on it. Um, that's obviously in a city as expensive as New York, very difficult to find. So, that's kind of like the first wave. Um, and then it then follows people who kind of want to be like artists or who think they're, they're artists. Um, you know, more uh, younger people, college, primarily college-educated, um, middle class, um, in Williamsburg's case, case overwhelmingly white. Um, so, uh, and, you know, and, that, and then that just sort of escalates, right? Then um, they're kind of the... The, the first wave, um, and once they kind of establish um, the base as, you know, a residential base and, an, and, a, a, and a commercial base in the neighborhood, that becomes attractive to people who are a little, little older, a little more educated, making even more money. And so then there's this sort of, you know, cycle of, of speculation and increasing real estate values. Okay. What's the significance of of the changing retail base in neighborhoods? And uh, Sharon Zukin, uh, urban sociologist, has um, argued that retail plays an important role in, in this process. Um, to you, how much, um, how significant, if at all, is uh, the changing retail in the neighborhood, which can really alter the look and feel of a particular neighborhood? 
Yeah, I think retail is huge, and and it's a, an important direction that hasn't gotten the sort of concentration of research that residential you know, gentrification has traditionally been addressed as a residential issue because that's where it first was made sort of most evident was in increasing residential um, prices. Um, but certainly you, you can't have those increasing residential prices or you, you won't maintain them if you don't have a commercial base that is attractive to that residential population. So you need to have um, stores that are geared toward toward the, the in-movers, toward gentrifiers, um, and that in the process you will then displace over you know more long-term commercial retail interests that served the previous population. So you have um, things like in Williamsburg, you know, art galleries replacing hardware stores, for example, um, or you know, obviously much, much more upscale restaurants displacing more kind of you know working-class takeout, quick, um, often ethnic restaurants. Um, that if you're going to to you know fully realize the rent gap, um, you need to attract the highest end use that you think can possibly survive in that space, right? And so you, once you have that popular, you know, residential population, you can then build that retail base or vice versa. Sometimes even the retail can be the attraction to draw the residential population. They, they feed on each other. Mm -hmm. um, you can't have one without the other. Um, and there is a certain, you know, class is hugely important here. People will feel more kind of comfortable in a retail environment that is tailored to their kind of class assumptions. Um, and so, you know, you will frequently see, um, and again, Williamsburg is an example of this, but there it's available in any gentrified neighborhood, um, you know, ethnic restaurants, sort of working class ethnic restaurants versus more upscale um, restaurants of the same, you know, sort of ethnic cuisine, but charging two or three times as much yeah. that people, then that's the sort of it place, whereas the, you know, well, the taqueria that's been there yeah. for 30 years is people don't feel comfortable walking in. Maybe they think that they need to know Spanish if they're going to go in there or something like that. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Sorry, just, I had a anecdote, just, uh, I was in the Mission District um, this, this past summer, and exactly that, you have, you know, one street over, two blocks over, you know, affordable, uh, cheap, um, you know, truly authentic uh, taquerias. And then across the street, you have the vegan version, you know, with an all white clientele. So yeah. it's charging yeah. three times as much. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Another like a popular option in Williamsburg is <clears throat> there are some great old school like diner kind of dining car um you know architecture right. that became you know that originally they were there to serve the workers of all the factories on the waterfront um but they ended up becoming you know very high scale um restaurants even if they many of which included diner in their name still but were no longer diners in the way that you know we think of in terms of kind of American history, yeah. you know, the diner is like a, you know, cheap, quick place to eat. So, so it was this definite kind of fusion of, in part, you know, maybe even an appreciation for the industrial and working class history of the neighborhood, but then sort of manifested in a way that didn't actually allow for the maintenance of mm -hmm. the, um, you know, the working class population. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> Because that's, I mean, I think rest, like restaurants are one, you know, from a retail point of view, um, 
are is kind of one of the the leading edges of gentrification. Right. Um, that that's and even things like you know Starbucks becomes this this um, flashpoint of how people feel about gentrification, and of how. Um, like in, in Williamsburg, every once in a while, there'll be a scare that a Starbucks is coming. And people feel like, oh, my God, then we really have lost all sense of, of neighborhood identity and urban authenticity mm-hmm. because then, you know, because Starbucks is, is anywhere and everywhere. It is, mm-hmm. you know, no place and every place. Um, and that what has built Williamsburg is this very strong sense of place, you know, really strong urban identity, um, even as the people who are attracted to that, that identity are engaged in displacing the people who created the identity, mm-hmm. right, because of the, because of the area's industrial past. Right. So, but yeah, but retail is absolutely crucial, I think, and, and too little research. What are the experiences of um, industrial displacement, and is mm-hmm. there a uniform story, or is there a diversity of experiences? Yeah. So um, there is a diversity of experiences, um, and that one way to categorize to categorize that is the difference between business owners who own the property in which they operate and those who rent um, property, and that business owners who own their property are more able to stay um, in place than those who rent, right? So those who rent are subject to the vagaries of the real estate market, and as a result, industrial displacement can be a, an experience that they go through multiple times. So um, one of one of the business owners I had interviewed categorized as um, going from the frying pan to the oven, uh, that you know you, she had been in Lower Manhattan, got displaced from there, moved to Williamsburg, and was in the process of being displaced from Williamsburg because of increasing rents, um, primarily as a result of residential conversion. Um, and so so that so it's not just a singular experience, even for one business, right? It can be a, a multiple experience, uh, an experience that happens multiple times. Um, it can happen in different ways. Um, Increasing rents is obviously the primary way in which um, displacement is experienced, a refusal to renew leases and that sort of thing. Um, But even for businesses who own their space, um, displacement can happen for a variety of reasons. One is that property owners will sell their own businesses, will sell their own own properties to, to realize the profits that are happening as a result of real estate speculation, mm-hmm. right? They don't want to be left out of the profit potential, especially for people who, you know, there are many businesses in places like Williamsburg that have been in operation for, you know, 50, 60, 80, even 100 years. Um, so obviously the profit potential to be realized in property that was purchased, you know, 60 years ago and prices that were available, in, you know, in the early 2000s before the crash, um, that's that's enormous, right? That's not something that people can easily walk away from. So there is that kind of process of self-displacement right. where um, where businesses sell their own property. Um, but even if that's not an option, another way in which um, businesses get displaced is is just through the hostile business climate that can be created by city policy. So, um, for example, there have been sort of parking wars that have gone on in Williamsburg as regular parking regulations have changed that have made it more difficult for trucks to park overnight, um, that have you know, made street parking more accessible to, to cars and therefore more hostile to trucks. Um, the planting of trees, um, which would seem to be a good thing, but was actually done with the, the trees were, were spaced in such a way to prohibit trucks from pulling up on the sidewalk mm. to make deliveries. 
for mm -hmm. example. Um, so, you know, sort of uh, building code violations related to, you know, things like elevators, um, fire department inspections that are, that become, you know, kind of onerous because of their, their frequency and then kind of the small fines that build up, um, complaints about noise and smells that result in fines for businesses. All of these things kind of combine to not necessarily immediately displace a business, but to create a climate in which um, it becomes just untenable to continue to do to do business there. It would seem that so much of this occurs at the mundane level of uh, the, really the bureaucratic does. planning yeah. department. And, that, and that's where it's really sort of interesting to talk about um, the way in which this narrative of the inevitability of um, deindustrialization, the way that that sort of happens, mm -hmm. right? Because especially in, well, certainly, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that there's no such thing as deindustrialization or that it's all the result of, you know, parking violations, right? So <laughs> clearly there are, there are big economic factors at work that make it cheaper to produce things in China than in New York City. Um, but for many, many businesses, that's not the case, right? Many smaller businesses need to be in New York City, you know, need to be in an urban environment, need access to other um, small-scale manufacturers, um, other, you know, things that, that produce elements of their product that they need or people who are the market for their products, right, that, they, that the urban environment, the urban location is absolutely essential for their business. And for those businesses, it is then the city who has made the city a hostile place to do business, right? It's, it's not global economic trends. It is, it is little everyday things um, that over the course of time make New York an unpleasant, you know, an, or an impossible place um, to do business. What, so that, yeah. that we're, we're in sort of the local makes the inevitability of globalization equaling deindustrialization happen. Right. Um, because plenty of businesses were able to survive the worst of deindustrialization in the 1970s. Um, Again, because they needed, you know, because they needed skilled workers to live in New York City, because their markets are in New York City, or need to be there, because they're niche manufacturers who serve local markets, um, or who serve immigrant populations. For example, that's a, a big trend in manufacturing in New York City, is entrepreneurs who serve the immigrant populations in New York, and so they can't be anyplace else because that's where their 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 market is. Mm -hmm. um, but if you have enough of these kind of other policy things pop up, then then they will look to move to you know, someplace in New Jersey, for example, um, because the city has made, um, you know, within city limits, a difficult place to do business. Right. How has rezoning and uh, zoning variances uh, played a role in, in the transformation and, and uh, displacement of, of these industries? It's huge. It cannot be overestimated, the importance of, of zoning. Um, because, of course, the whole reason these places exist as industrial enclaves in the first place is because of zoning, right? They're there because they have to be because of zoning. That's where industrial businesses were allowed to be, and they're supposed to be protected because of that, right? You know, these residential uses aren't supposed to be allowed. They were supposed to be safe in, in, in these neighborhoods. Um, and so the, the variances um, made, the, made the speculation possible. Once illegal conversions happened and the city, rather than cracking down on them, validated them by allowing for zoning variances that basically guaranteed that um, the turnover would be pretty rapid as people tried to get in on the, the profits to be gained from that difference between the rent that you can charge for, for industrial use and for residential use, right? especially in the you know, sort of hottest days of the market. Um, in the early 2000s, the differences in those rates 
were, you know, typically it's it's about three times more for residential than for industrial. Um, but in the early 2000s, I mean, it was, it was exponentially more. You know, it was just sort of ridiculous how much money you could get for, for residential real estate in, in Williamsburg. And so even for businesses that were not themselves directly threatened with rezoning, the possibility that it could come, um, that it was something that, that, you know, was an option down the road made their position much more untenable. Um, so that especially for businesses that rented their space, their understanding was that once, you know, sort of landlords knew how much better they could do if they converted their buildings, then it was only a matter of time before they would be forced to go, even if they hadn't heard about it yet. Right. And for owners, for business owners who own their own property, again, the, the you know, that's a hard um, it's a hard thing to turn down that kind of money, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to recognize that kind of profit in, you know, for business owners who are making things, you know, like elevator parts or something that where, you know, there's not a, a whole lot of um, profit potential. Right. Um, so, so rezoning, I mean, really was the, the, the fact that zoning variances on individual buildings had been allowed even, you know, all through the eighties and nineties um, just sort of built up to then kind of demand that then the large-scale rezoning of the Williamsburg waterfront that happened in 2005, um, that, that sort of became inevitable because the variances had been allowed. Right. Um, because once you create that market, that demand for, um, for residential space in industrial buildings, then everyone's going to try to cash in on that option. Um, yeah. and, no, then, yeah. and that, of course, then reduces the amount of industrial space that is available citywide, and so then even businesses, when they're displaced from from a particular space, who want to stay in business and stay in the city, it becomes very difficult for them to do so because the stock of industrial space has been so severely depleted. Right. Is is this just pencil pushing bureaucrats that are doing these, making these changes, and allowing these variances to occur and rezoning, or um, can we attribute much of this change? and the idea of the inevitability of this back to those that are actually elected? Um, I think even both of those things are yeah. true. But I think even more so it's to, to, to real estate interests, right? The real estate yeah. lobby in New York City is incredibly powerful, yeah. right? You know, it, it is one of the primary economic cent- sectors in New York City. And so they put incredible um, you know, pressure, financial pressure, political pressure on both elected officials as well as, you know, the, the, the bureaucrats who, who kind of get the work done, um, that, this is, that this is sort of, you know, what makes sense. Um, and, th- th- and that is sort of reinforced by a lot of the, the sort of discourse around, um, you know, being competitive in, in, in this environment of global cities and, and the, you know, being able to attract the creative class and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, that because this kind of narrative of inevitability exists, that then makes it possible for um, urban policymakers to make these decisions, right? They, they think it, that it, it's sort of this reinforcing narrative of inevitability because they think it's the only option that they have, right? right? That this, this is what it means to be a global city. This is what a global city looks like. You know, global cities don't have, you know, garment manufacturers and, you know, small scale, um, sample book garment, uh, manufacturers. They don't have, you know, elevator part wholesalers. They don't have, you know, plumbing, um, supply manufacturers, um, metal stamping, 
water tank production. You know, these are not things that we think of uh, as being connected with the global city, um, and and therefore in our drive to to you know sort of save face, especially for New York as as perhaps the the most global of global cities, um, feels the need to to conform to this narrative. Um, but I think because you know very clearly certain interests are served, and and primary among these is um, our real estate interests. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they create a lot of the a lot of the pressure, and then the the bureaucrats and even some politicians I think feel like they they don't have that many options, um, because of this you know because they feel this kind of global pressure. Is there an ex- explicit pressure from real estate interests? Um to uh, pursue these policies, um, or is it more of a, an understanding um, between um, politician, policymakers, politicians, planners, that you have to conform, um, or are, is there a more kind of nefarious side yeah. to, to all of this? I think, um, I don't maybe want to go so far as to say nefarious, but mm-hmm. I think it's, um, you know, lobbies make political contributions for a reason. Yeah. Um, and a lot of, and perhaps not as pernicious as that, or in a way maybe even more pernicious, is the, you know, these are the people that mayors and city councilmen hang out with, right? Especially, you know, when you have a billionaire mayor, he hangs out with other <laughs> billionaire mm-hmm. CEOs. Um, that, you know, I think that that there is a the the um, sort of real estate lobby in New York City has been very powerful for a very long period of time. Um, you know, it's not. This is really nothing new. This is the way New York has worked for a long time. Um, you know, the, the, there were people, important money, real estate interest, snapping up land um, adjacent to Central Park before it was even built. Once they understood that it was going to happen, because they knew that that would lead to increased real estate values. So, this this kind of connection of real estate interest driving urban development in New York is nothing new, and it's not specific just to gentrification either. Um, you know, everywhere. Um, real estate interests are powerful moneyed interests. Um, and so I think that is, you know, understood in a variety of levels right. in urban government um, from a kind of practical financial concern, but also um, from even a, a kind of, so, it's, it's been kind of socialized um, yeah. within New York City. You know, anyone who lives in New York talks real estate and has an understanding of real estate markets in a way that I have not experienced living mm-hmm. in other cities anyway. Yeah. New Yorkers are far more concerned with the kind of space and how much space costs and what you have to do to get in space um, because of this, you know, tightly controlled market that we have um, that, you know, so in a way that's even more kind of hyper than in other cities. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, uh, it's certainly also a, uh, something that occurs in Vancouver and not to the same extent, but Vancouver has been rezoning industrial land for a long time now and um certainly not a global city but wants to be one um for whatever reason and and whatever it takes but that experience um of displacing industry and blue collar working class jobs um and then on the right a lot of the argument is well you know if you can't afford the city, then you shouldn't live here. Um, And in some ways, well, if your jobs aren't, if there aren't even working class jobs, then you maybe don't even have any reason to be in the city um, for employment. But with that said, a lot of this, I I feel like it comes back to the idea of a right to the city. And Mm -hmm. I guess if you could relate employment and housing and, um, 
processes of gentrification, is there a right to the city and in some ways a right to these working class jobs? Yeah, well, I certainly believe there's a right to the city because, and especially in a place like New York, or really, I mean, but it's any place that that to say we don't need your skills anymore, you can't afford to live here. By ignores the history of the city. I mean, these these are the neighborhoods that built the city. The city doesn't exist the way it does today if these neighborhoods hadn't been the industrial powerhouses that they were. Um, you know, it's not attractive now, but what makes New York a global city is its is its productive capacity, right? It's and that that is not true to the same extent for every city. But you know, the working class builds the city. <laughs> um, you know, quite literally in many places. I mean, we we still need the working class for plenty of things that we don't think of as being essential to the global city, but they are. Um, mm-hmm. You know who's making the food that we eat. You know, as as sort of services, like we we've talked we talk about the the transformation to the service economy so often. Um, the services are not just the finance, insurance, and real estate that um, you know dominate Wall Street and that sector of the economy in New York. They're the the, the dry cleaners and the daycare workers and the cab drivers and the the um, you know the food service workers and all these people you know, who provide the services that enable the people in the service economy to do what they do. Um, and so to then say, so that, you know, the people who are being displaced from working class industrial neighborhoods are not just people who have, who have, you know, directly lost jobs in, you know, that metal stamping plant, but increased rents are affecting all these people who do directly serve the global economy. Right, and that, in fact, within one household, we can have people, you know, working in different sectors of the economy, perhaps with, even within different, you know, classes mm-hmm. within the economy. So um, that's an overly simplistic view and understanding of the cities. Just just say, oh well, we don't need you anymore. Um, you can go now. Um, in part because, as we see, as a result of the financial crisis from 2008 till now, um, the services are not a particularly reliable. Thing upon which to build an economy, right? The, that places that have a strong productive base, a strong industrial base, are far more likely to weather a crisis like this um, than places who have so single-handedly put all their eggs in the Wall Street basket. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, in fact, even New York City has realized this now, and in parts of, of Mayor, Bloomberg, Mayor Bloomberg's plan NYC for 2030, um, there is this recognition that that industry uh, and industrial uses do need to be valorized again, um, because we've left ourselves quite vulnerable by um, by removing a lot of the economic diversity that is what built the city in the first place. So, um, so I do think there's a right to the city on a just a, a kind of social justice, a moral justice kind of grounds. But there's also a really practical consideration to take into account in that any city needs to, what makes cities great is diversity in terms of economics, um, but and also in terms of, of you know, culture and populations. Um, you know, we need everyone in the city to make the city what it is. That's what makes cities interesting.
And you're listening to The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca. Syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca. Also available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. And in case you missed part of that program, uh, check out the podcast again at www.thecityfm.org. And The City is available live 5 p.m. every Tuesday on CITR and at 10 a.m. syndicated on CJSF 90.1. And uh, we're wrapping up the show um, now. We've got Flex Your Head coming up at 6 p.m. here on CITR 101.9 FM. And we also have um, on, if you're listening, syndicated on CJSF, you've got Democracy Now! coming on at 11 a.m. And uh, just to wrap it up, uh, you heard um, an in-depth discussion with uh, Winifred uh, Curran, uh, Curran. excuse me. She is an urban geographer at DePaul University and has extensively studied um, processes of gentrification and industrial displacement, particularly in uh, the neighborhood of Williamsburg, Brooklyn, um, just across uh, the river from Manhattan. And uh, again, check that out, that podcast at thecityfm.org. And uh, we're going to finish off the show, um, but thanks for tuning in. And uh, that little music break, uh, that was Brooklyn Bound. Brooklyn, excuse me, Brooklyn bound, uh, too many B's in there, um, from the Black Keys. And um, we'll be back next week uh, with more critical urban discussions. And we're going to be continuing um, this series looking at urban economies and um, those those geographies um, over the course of the next couple months um, through this ongoing series. So uh, tune in every week um, or check it out online, thecityfm.org. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. Um, I'm Andy Longhurst. Want to know what's up at UBC? Read the UBC. It's only the largest student newspaper in Western Canada, and it's written and edited entirely by UBC students. The UBC is your source for on-campus news, culture, and sports. New editions come out every Monday and Thursday. For breaking news as well as amazing videos and blogs, check out ubc.ca. Join Team PowerSmart. Set an energy conservation target of 10%. You'll get access to tools to help you conserve, and you can track your progress online. Visit bchydro.com forward slash Team PowerSmart to join today. This message brought to you by BC Hydro PowerSmart and CITR 101.9 FM Vancouver. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you.